This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with James M. Banner, Jr., author of the book, The Ever-Changing Past, Why All History is Revisionist History. Jim, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be with you. Oh, glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a half an academic and half of what's called a public historian. I was on the Princeton faculty and permanently so for 15 years early in my career. Um, I left uh, that faculty to create an organization here in Washington where I've lived since 1979. That didn't work out. I stayed here, uh, made a living, uh, remained a historian, continued to uh, work in historical circles, write some, and since my um, retirement, my semi-retirement in the mid-90s, I've been back doing history full-time um, rather miscellaneously in the sense that I have not um, participated in, in, with, 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 to any great depth in my specialty, which is the early American Republic, roughly from 1765 to 1785. But I've kept up with that. I am and in fact, I'm currently back doing some work in that field. Hmm. So that, uh, that in short, uh, is, is a, a sort of a, a compressed <laughs> a report on my life. Um, one of the advantages, uh, I think, to not being in the academy, which I miss uh, very much, is that I'm free to take up the topics uh, that I want. And, and so I turned myself most recently to trying to think through what it means when we use the term and think and talk about revisionist history. It is uh, a term, I think, that a lot of people have already loaded with a certain significance. I was wondering what led you to write a book that was designed to explain what revisionist history is and, and the ways in which it's always been with us. Well, it came upon me from outside, um, which in fact is one of the points I make in my consideration of revisionist history that's eventuated in a book. Um, And that is that historians are not free of the culture and the society and the origins and the people they are with the dispositions that they possess and dispositions they probably possess uh, from birth. Um, The I was not intending to write about the subject. In fact, I'd thought about it um, very little, except in the way that all professional historians think about it, and that is that they have to know the literature of the subjects in which 
they function as scholars. And um, so, for example, I knew the historiography of the Civil War, and I knew the historiography of, of the rise of constitutional government in the United States. But I never thought about the phenomenon of revisionist history and what is meant when people use it formally and informally, until one day I found myself in, in uh, the chambers of Justice Clarence Thomas with my late colleague, um, Roger Brown. And we were leading about 50 uh, students. They were, most of them were high school teachers uh, through what came to be known as Constitution Boot Camp. It was a very <laughs> intensive month-long sem uh, seminar on the origins of constitutional government here in the United States. And Justice Thomas had agreed to speak with the students and wanted to be briefed by Roger and me. So we're sitting there having a nice conversation and he turns to us and he says, um, hey, you guys, um, you, you'd probably be interested in the fact that I'm spending the summer reading the history of slavery. And what are we, what we're going to say? That's a terrible idea, Mr. Justice. But we, of course not. So we said, uh, that's terrific, Mr. Justice. Tell us what you're reading. And we were having a very nice conversation and he did tell us what we were reading. He was reading John O. Franklin and the works of John Blasingame. Kenneth Stamp and others, but not, he said, the revisionists. So uh, unusually quick-witted at that moment, I thought to myself, you don't get many opportunities like this, so run with it. And so I said, well, Mr. Justice, do you know anything, for example, about John Hope Franklin? Do you know who he is? And do you know anything about, you're probably reading the seventh edition from, from Slavery to Freedom. Do you know anything about that book or about him? No, said the justice. So Roger and I led him through um, very briefly through Franklin's biography and through the, the history of that book and its many editions. And then the problem was getting out of the conversation. So I said to the justice, so Mr. Justice, when you're sitting at home this evening uh, in your soft armchair with From Slavery to Freedom in your hands, I just want you to know that you're reading one of the great works of revisionist history uh, produced by one of the great uh, uh, revisionist historians of the, the American 20th century. And you would have thought, Mark, if you had been sitting in the room, you would have guessed that he would have said, where have I gone wrong? What have I missed? What do I not understand? But he got uneasy with that and immediately turned the discussion in another direction. And that lingered with me. And I realized as time passed that revisionist history as a phenomenon, not as a matter that every historian takes up in relationship to her or his subject, that revisionist history is, a, is, history is a phenomenon has not been addressed by historians. And in fact, there's only been one other book in the English language on the general phenomenon of revisionist history. And that was published posthumously in 1929. That's 92 years ago. So it seemed to me that it was probably time for, <laughs> for a refreshed look at the phenomenon. So I have stood in, in, in this book I, I stand above the subject. It's, it's an epiphenomenal look at revisionist history as, as something that exists, as I argue, and I think is clear, that has existed for 2,500 years. I'm not, I'm not arguing with the right or the left. I'm not criticizing people, complaining about people. I'm trying to look at it as a phenomenon, general phenomenon taken Western historiography as my subject, you know, the Greeks and the Romans up to the present, Western Europe and the United States principally, and tried to make sense of the subject that no one has tried to make sense of before, or at least not for 
roughly 90 years. Um, it's my take on the subject. Um, there's very little literature on it. Um, I've had to make it up as I go along. I'm certain that people are going to differ with me. They're going to say, well, I would have done it the other way. I'm glad they would think that way. I'd like to learn how they would take it up. So this is really my cut at a subject that has no history and no general consideration um, before me. It's fascinating that we only have, as, as you've noted, just these two books on revisionist history. And yet one of the things I thought was really interesting about your book was that in a way, if you look at it from a different perspective, nearly every book of history is in a way a revisionist history. So we, you have this topic that is simultaneously enormous and yet you know, has never really been fully uh, addressed. And I like how you tackle that, especially when you get back to the very origins of the the idea of history and the study of history way back in the ancient past. I mean, you go all the way back to the, the the classics. You go all the way back to to Homer. You go to Herodotus. You go to Thucydides. And you're pointing out how these people who we nowadays would regard as the the the, the first, you know, the cornerstone of, of, what, of what we think of as history were in themselves revisionists. <laughs> Well, that, that's right. In, in, in a sense, Herodotus took some slight um, difference uh, from his, his mythic, his, his probably half-real predecessor, Homer, his, his, the rhapsode, the, the people who limbed the glories of, of, of the past. Um, Thucydides, I think, probably is the first person who can legitimately be called a revisionist historian because he took open and sharp um, issue with his predecessor and near contemporary uh, Herodotus. And so the point, one of the points that I insist on is that revisionist history, if we think of it as um, different ways of coming at the past from different people with different intentions, revisionist history has existed in the Western world from the start. It's not foreign to historical thought. It's not a newfangled element of history, as some people believe that arose in the United States and say in France in 1968. Um, revisionist history is there from the beginning, and we've been arguing for two and a half millennia, it's a long time, two and a half millennia about how history should be done, um, why the way in which we decide that question determines what we learn from it, and so on. And there doesn't seem to be any way to quiet those arguments. They're sort of integral to the work that historians do, and that I would hope by this discussion you and I are having today, um, and the readers of the book, and everyone else will become aware of as they read history. Every history that they hold in their lap or have on tape or whatever it may be, is provisional. Um, it's one way of seeing whatever the subject is. Um, historical knowledge, written history, is never final for all times, for all people. It can't be because we are all different people and history would be of no use if it didn't speak to you and me and to our times. And thus it is that we don't read with much interest, except if we're, unless we're antiquarians or, like myself, a scholar of the past. We don't read histories written in the 19th century with much pleasure because the style is different. Um, 
the the requirements of, uh, of, of 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 facticity and the use of evidence and so on are are, are somewhat earlier than ours today. Um, people then hadn't built up the archives and the use of the archives that we have today, so we have a much deeper dig into the past and the access of getting there than our predecessors did. So it doesn't make too much sense for us to read 19th century histories because they don't speak to us. So all history somehow has to be present history, but it has to be subject to, to sharp criticism and evaluation on the grounds of the use of evidence, the quality of argument, the plausibility of the interpretation, and so on. So, but, but historians have been going at that for two and a half millennium. And you provide some really great examples of it, both in terms of the you know the issues you identify those of, of the prose and the style on the one hand, and then also how uh, new information uh, you know you know causes us to reconsider subjects or or or, or appreciate subjects in a, very, in a very different light. But I was wondering, maybe before we get into that, if you could perhaps delineate what makes a history you know, sort of the, this notion of what history, revisionist history really is and and how it you sort of reflects that that notion of this uh, ongoing, fluid, uh, uh, you know, process of, of, of interpreting the past. Yeah, that's a critical question, and I'm glad you've asked it. Um, I, first of all, I look at history, um, all histories are prospectively or provisionally revisionist. That's number one. But what do I mean by that? Revisionist history is any challenge to existing interpretations of any aspect of the past brought on by new evidence, new arguments, new perspectives, new methods. Now, um, uh, so, and, and one has to immediately bring into view at this point the matter of scale. Let me, let me give you an example of a transformative example of revisionist history. That's when we went in the fourth century AD from classic pagan histories of the Greeks and the Romans and the Neo-Hellenic world and so on into Christian historiography with the birth of Christian history by the Bishop of Caesarea Eusebius, um, who was the first person to write on the basis of, of available evidence to him, um, the, uh, the, 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 the history of the world from the day one to his time. Now, we've been living under the remit of Eusebius ever since. I mean, it transformed the way and set the patterns for way in which we view history. So that's grand scale revisionism. And there's no question but that that, that was revisionist history of an extraordinary subject, namely the history of the world, as it was known in the Eastern Mediterranean in the fourth century AD. But let's take let's take the history of some comparatively insignificant battle in the American Civil War. I'm just making this up now. I'm just so there's a battle that's been fought in in Tennessee, and there was no real consequence. But there are those who've written about the battle and who who perform it once a year as reenactors. And suddenly a group of letters are discovered. And it was always said, by the way, that the battle 
was was lost because of superior Union um, uh, firepower, and that the the Confederate forces in Tennessee lost that battle because they were bested by Union forces. Well, it turns out that a group of letters are discovered in some in some uh, archive somewhere, some family cache of, of letters, and it shows that that was not the case. That in fact, these letters are from a conservative um, a soldier. In fact, the orders from Confederate headquarters um, uh, to the Confederate forces as to what they should do never arrived because the courier was lost en route. And so reinforcements weren't weren't sent, and so the, 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 the Southern forces lost the battle. Well, that shifts our understanding of the battle itself, that it wasn't lost because of superior, necessarily only superior Union firepower, but because the Southern forces didn't get the reinforcements they needed. Now, that's not going to change our view of the Civil War. But it does throw one more bit of evidence into the balance suggesting that the Confederate, at least the Confederate forces in Tennessee, were better intentioned and had better orders than we thought before. So on the scale, the small scale of that battle, something more has been learned. Now, that, to me, is revisionist history, normal revisionist history, on a very small scale. They both, Eusebius's transformative reevaluation of the history of the world and this little change in an insignificant encounter in Tennessee in 1864 are equally revisionist history on the scale of the subject that they, uh, uh, that they consist in. So that's the way I look at revisionist history as a phenomenon it's it's fascinating to think about how so much of that revisionism is just as you describe it. Sometimes it's a a a, 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 a a in its way a small discovery, but it's also something that even from that small discovery you can start to have this very broad consideration. I'm thinking here about uh, your, your your the passage in your book where you talk about the uh, the uh, Jefferson Hemings controversy because on one level you think about it, you know. Does anything about that really change what we know about Jefferson's career? Does it change anything that we know about uh, Jefferson's time as president or uh, his, his activities as Secretary of State or anything like that? And and you know a lot of people would probably say no to that. And yet at the same time, you know that 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 little detail that that as you point out, you know it was 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 you know debated even before we brought in uh, the DNA evidence uh, in the late nineties that. It does profoundly, you know, it does cause us to profoundly reconsider a lot of what he said and a lot of what he did. It doesn't change what he did, but it does cause us to see it in a very different light in some respects. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and you've, in effect, answered your own question. It is the, the first of all, I, this is this is a case of, of, of revisionist history or rather the demonstration of the reality of charges or claims that had been made as early as 1803 against Thomas Jefferson. It confirmed those charges, those rumors, and it did so by new methods and new techniques. We, the, we were 
starting in the 1970s, through the work of Fawn Brody, we were getting closer and closer to being able to demonstrate that, yes, Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with his, his enslaved concubine, Sally Hemings. I'm sorry, Brody argued that it's strange, isn't it, that, Jeff, that, that Hemings had a child about nine months every time that Jefferson returned home. And it was dismissed by the protectors of Jefferson's uh, uh, reputation. Um, and it didn't get very far until Annette Gordon-Reed, an attorney turned historian now, um, suggested that the kind of evidence that was presented by the protectors of Jefferson's image would not stand up in court as, because it was hearsay evidence unless we had hearsay from the other side. So she, she really blasted open the way in which the arguments about Jefferson's not having fathered those children had been made. They hadn't been made in equal controversy, uh, given equal weight in the same courtroom. But we still didn't have any um, definitive evidence. And the, the ability of DNA science to show that those who claimed um, uh, ancestry from Thomas Jefferson had the same DNA markers as Jefferson's own um, claimed and, and certified um, uh, bearers of his blood did, pretty well cinched the case that Jefferson was the father of some, at least some of Hemings' children. And um, so it gave us, first of all, it made clear that Jefferson was leading a double life, that he was leading a double life that, like many other white men in the South, and perhaps white women too, we haven't really full, filled out that part of the story, uh, were leading. Um, and so that there was a, <laughs> a, a solid amount of hypocrisy in their, their lives and in their words. It also made clear how permeating um, sexual and affective relations between white and blacks in at least Virginia, at least Tidewater, Virginia, could be. Um, and so it, it greatly enriched our knowledge and our standing and perhaps our sympathy and empathy for both white and black men and women in at least colonial and, and early national Virginia um, could be. And to me, it, it just confirmed the complexity of human life and how, how in error it had been earlier to assume that somehow Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or James Madison could have been free of the kind of life, the complexities of life, the emotions, the passions, the needs of human existence that other people like you and me are subject to. I mean, that had never made sense to me, but we really couldn't tie it down in Thomas Jefferson's case. And doing so, to me, felt like a liberation. And it greatly enriched our understanding of that whole era, and particularly that era in the South. Now, I, I think we should take a step back here because we've now addressed I, I, what I think of as the opposite poles of the concept of revisionist history. You have Eusebius, who you know, had this, you know, this, this very uh, world-altering, uh, uh, you know, a revisionist approach, and then you have uh, this much more 
uh, small scale approach that 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 you see with uh, you know with patient you know, forensic analysis, patient, uh, you know, legal argumentation. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit more about the various types of revisionist history that we have and and, and, and how not all revisionist history is necessarily the, s- the same in terms of its scale and its effect. Um, surely. Um, I've, I decided that to talk, I mean, in, in some respects, saying that some kind, some book of history, some work of history is revisionist history, even if so, it doesn't say much. I mean, it's like calling ice cold. Yes, ice is cold, but that's not what's interesting <laughs> about ice. That's not what makes frozen water of physical interest uh, to scientists. Um, that's just one of its uh, characteristics. So um, I wanted to at least distinguish cases, as lawyers might say. And so um, I've already mentioned the... Um, I've used the term transformative uh, history in the case of Eusebius's uh, Christian historiography. Um, I distinguish that from what I call philosophical revisionism. And that's the argument that's been going on since ancient Greece between the Herodotians and the Thucydideans. Namely, does history take in all subjects? Because Herodotus was an omnivorous and a remarkably curious um, world-traveled man. And he was interested in the, 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 the realities of both Greek and barbarians, that meant Persians in his case, when he was writing of, of the wars of his time, of before his time. He was interested in their myths, their oral traditions, their architecture, the stories they told, um, the evidences they sought, uh, the way their armies dressed, and so on. Thucydides came along and said, this is a ridiculous way to do history. History is about statecraft, politics, institutions, warfare, and of course, men, men only. And um, that battle has raged ever since. We're in the midst of it right now. And let me stop here also to point out, and, and Mark, bring me back to this question you just Ask me, but I, I want to deviate here uh, for a minute. Um, that brings me to the question that we've been arguing for 2,500 years, in effect, as to what is the correct way to do history. And let me point out here that, um, and this is in the context now of our current politics and the politics we've been in for 75 years. The right, the conservative, the conservatives won that vote for 2,300 years. For 2,300 years, all history was written in the Thucydidean mold. And that um, has been made clear um, by the work of scholars. I mean, uh, someone, a conservative classicist, a historian of the classical world, Donald Kagan, emeritus from the Yale faculty, calls Thucydides the first revisionist historian, because he took issue with Herodotus. But it turns out that Donald Kagan is a very conservative man, sort of, and celebrates Thucydidean history because it won the battle for 2,300 years. The conservative way, the Donald Kagan-approved way of doing history, politics, elections, institutions, warfare, men, diplomacy, and so on, took the field. 
Now, Herodotian history has come back. So we have an incredibly um, deep and widespread debate these days about how history should be done. And so when people complain that we're now um, uh, having courses on, on uh, material culture and on, um, on women and on um, a gay and lesbian history and so on, what they're really protesting against is against the reduction in the proportion of attention that's given to the old Thucydidean subjects. Which brings me to another conclusion I've come to, uh, two other conclusions I've come to in my work in trying to understand the entire phenomenon. One is that revisionist history, no history, revisionist history particularly, uh, cohabits with any political party. Um, revisionist history has no politics. Revisionist history is done by everyone. It arises all over the map. And um, we should just accept that. And in a sense, there are no permanent historiographic victories, if one thinks in partisan or terms like uh, liberal and conservative. There are no permanent victories. There are no permanent defeats. And I will risk my reputation and I'll go to the mat with the following proposition, that the conservatives win as often as the liberals. I mean, those wins, those victories are provisional. They may not last, but both sides should take comfort in the fact that they pull out the victories. Sometimes they lose the game sometimes, but just wait around, boys and girls. Things are likely to change with the passage of time as we gain more evidence, as we figure out new ways to argue a subject as we come at an old subject with fresh perspectives, um, as new methods to interpret old evidence uh, arise. So there's no, there are rarely placid times in historiography. Historians are always involved in debates, arguments, usually not only well-intentioned, but well carried out with, with perfect ease. We're used to it. We argue with each other because we believe that argument is a way to make progress towards uh, the never reachable, but always desirably reachable goal of objective and final history. Yeah, I was thinking that if anybody would you know, disagree with that interpretation, I would just point them to the portion of your book where you talk about the interpretive uh, debates over the French Revolution, where, <laughs> where, which, which have gone on you know, nonstop for the past uh, two plus centuries. <laughs> Well, that's that's right, and I use that illustration um, uh, for two reasons. One is that historical writing and thinking um, may not have uses, you know, that you can use, things you can use when you're out having dinner with friends, but they have consequences, they have fruits. And my argument about the literature, about the origins and the meaning of the, and the consequences of the French Resolution, those arguments helped the French people to come to an understanding of themselves as the people of France. Of France. And um, that, that doesn't mean that historians were responsible for changes in the French people's understanding of themselves as a people, but it does mean that historical writing and knowledge did make a contribution 
to changes in that understanding. And um, I, 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 I think that's really important to bear in mind um, that what we historians do may not have any particular consequence on any particular day, but as a body of work, it um, can bring about uh, changes as profound as those of the, of, the, of the creation of the modern French people and the modern French state. Um, so that's where historical argumentation uh, really can come into play in uh, a culture, not just the intellectual culture, but, but a culture largely conceived as, say, the French nation or the American nation. I think that especially comes across when you're talking in your chapter about the debates about the origins of the American Civil War, because there you have uh, a, a subject which, you know, given you know the ongoing debates we have in our society today, that so much of them you know are are based at least in part upon that question itself, and it really does boil down to that notion of who we are as a nation and what sort of uh, of, of ideas about ourselves do we have. Um, th- that's absolutely correct. And if you if you start with the um, immediate post-war decades, um, uh, uh, historians, there were no professional historians, but people who th- wrote histories in those days were arguing from a southern and a northern perspective. And toward the end of the 19th century, after these the members of the, the, the veterans of the Civil War had begun to decline in number. And I think that's very important. I think it's very hard to begin to get even a partially objective um, stand-off view of any event until the participants in it have have begun to pass from the scene. Um, Then we began arguing about how we could better explain the Civil War's origins um, outside of the arguments that the participants had had from the 1850s on. And um, we did that um, at the time of the reconciliation of white, uh, of of the North and South, the reconciliation that took place by reading African-Americans out of the vote and out of participation in American society to the point that Woodrow Wilson, for the first time in American history, formally segregated the federal service during his presidency. And we are now legatees of that historiography and those events. And we've been trying to climb out of that argument and that resolution of our understanding of the Civil War that started in the early part of the 20th century. We've been trying to work our way out of that historiographically ever since. What we argue now is that, yes, racism and slavery were at the roots of the origins of the Civil War, of its outbreak at Fort Sumter, with its with its fighting, with its conclusion, um, and then with Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Now, I am a historian. I have studied and taught the Civil War, not as deeply as other scholars only of the Civil War have done, but I am I am comfortable with the current resolution of the arguments about the origins and the meaning of the American Civil War. I would not, however, lay down any more than about one dollar that in 75 years we'll see it the same way. I think it's very, 
it's it's very um, egotistical of any historian to think that the way that she or he sees a part of a past is going to be the one the way that his or her predecessors are going to see that part of the past. So um, we always have to leave open the possibility that the way in which a con that a consensus that has been reached now, as it has been about the causes of the Civil War, is going to last forever. And I think that's, you know, it, again, going back to what you're uh, what we were talking about earlier with the varieties of revisionism is that we can we, that consensus might be there on some aspect of an event like say the the origins of the American Civil War or you know how the outbreak of it, but there will always be a, a, on some level a revision taking place. As you pointed out, there might be the discovery of new evidence, say uh, you know a letter from you know a, a Northern abolitionist or you know. Who, uh, or, or, or from a, a participant on the scene who has a, a very, uh, you know, who provides different information. And this gets to uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the, the notion of the, the very, that, that there is no one type of revisionism, there are multiple ones, and that it's, 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 it's always happening on some level, be it large or small. Well, yes, exactly. Let me give you two completely disparate examples of that, just to, to keep pushing on the point. Um, there are now books I mean, it's hard to believe, and they're very good books. There are books written about the history of pencils, the history of bookshelves, the history of the footnote. Now, those may not be interesting to every American citizen, to you or me, but it suggests the victory that historians generally have had, regardless of their politics, that historians have had in historicizing everything that making it clear that everything has a history and that the history that's written of pencils and bookshelves, for example, may change. I don't know of any people who are studying pencils or bookshelves at the, at the moment. That's, that's one thing. The second point I want to make, um, it's, it, it, it follows the point I made about who wins and who loses. Consensus to us historians, is everything. There's never going to be complete agreement. You and I will never agree about something about the past. That just goes without saying. Even though we know a lot, even though we are people of utmost goodwill, um, we like each other, uh, we meet each other often, you'll say, I disagree with you, Jim, and I'll say, Mark, I disagree with you. And that's the way it has to be left, because you and I are different. But look what, look what happens as a result of, of arguments like that and consensus. 25 or 30 years ago, the, the consensus of historians was that Alger Hiss had probably been taken for a ride and that the Rosenbergs were not guilty of espionage. Now, since the Soviet archives have been opened, we think differently. The consensus is that Alger Hiss was guilty and so were the Rosenbergs. So here's another case in which you'd say the conservatives have won the battle. Well, they've won the battle in, in gaining a consensus of historians who follow that subject, that those people who complained about the, the, the left-wing attitude towards uh, Hiss and the Rosenbergs, they have become, at the moment, they are the winners in that battle. They also seem to have won the field when it comes to the V 
very freighted issue as to whether the United States was justified in dropping bombs, uh, atom bombs on Japan. I mean, it was long considered in historical circles that we should not have done it. There were other ways to end the war um, that, um, oh, that, that the, the um, figure that a million American lives would, have, would be lost in the conquest of Japan without the use of the bombs was an accurate figure and so on. Well, now consensus has shifted markedly and at the moment, and I, I emphasize those words, at the moment, three little words, at the moment, consensus seems to be built around an acceptance of the fact that for all sorts of reasons, diplomatic, um, scientific, um, internally political, um, uh, military, all sorts of reasons, that Harry Truman really had no, um, no wiggle room in authorizing the dropping of those bombs. Now, certainly people differ with that conclusion, but that at the moment is the consensus view of that subject. And so I think that that's, that's, that's best, as best we can hope for with many subjects. Um, uh, in other words, there's no such thing as objective history. There is plausible history. There's likely history. There's history that for a time is taken to be um, considered to be the strongest case, but you can never say case closed. And, and yet it, it, there's, this is something that we can think of as being purely academic, were it not for the fact that it ties into all of these issues about uh, who we are as a people, who we are as a nation, who we are as a society. And I was uh, in your uh what you talked about there with the question of dropping the the atomic bomb on Japan is an excellent example of this because it was not just a bunch of historians uh, slinging articles at each other in journals where we had this. It was a very public debate that took, that that emerged uh, most dramatically in the 1990s when there's this question of displaying the Enola Gay and 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 the, and the people who who uh, were arguing for one set of interpretations and the pushback against that and how this became not just an academic debate, but a, but a more fundamental one about, you know, was this the right thing to do? What does this say about us as a nation that we did it? And how should we remember it going yeah, forward? It was, a, it was a fascinating debate. It took place right here in Washington while I was living here. But of course, it grew, it grew out, of, out of reservations, deep reservations that even the scientists who were at work developing atomic um, uh, fission, atomic, atomic weaponry, um, felt in the 1940s. And this was nothing new to historians. It broke into public view in the 90s when um, the Smithsonian Institution, the National Museum of, of, of Air, the National Air and Space Museum, tried to mount an exhibit with the entire fuselage of the Enola Gay, which was the airplane that had dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, um, was proposed. And it was proposed at a time when veterans of the Second World War, that people who had fought in Germany and, and in the Pacific Theater were still alive. They were members of the Air Force Association. They were veterans. They had suffered. Many of them, not alive, of course, had died. Their, their families were still alive. And it, it became impossible to put up an exhibit on the mall that would debate that would expose Americans who visited the exhibit to the debate that had been raging among historians as to whether 
the, the, the bombings of Japan were justified or not. It didn't take a position that the bombings were justified or were not justified. The proposed exhibit was going to lay out the debate, but it got nowhere. It was, and it got nowhere because politically, the right wing um, could marshal its forces to stop that exhibit dead in its tracks. So in a sense, this was a victory for the right. Well, it turns out, and of course the left wing was up in arms about it, but it turns out that now historiographically, most historians of the subject agree with, 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 with the conservative view that, that the United States had no choice but to drop the two bombs on Japan. And, um, and, and what the way I look at the debate and its outcome is that it's an inevitable consequence of the existence of what we all should treasure. And that is an open society where people are free to dispute with each other, where there's no permanent resolution to anything, where the fact that the exhibit failed on the mall didn't keep you or me, Mark, or any people listening to us from having their own views privately or continuing to to campaign for the acceptance of their views in their own circles and so on. This is an open society. And I look on these debates, whoever the victors are, sometimes my side, so to speak, whatever my side may be, loses, sometimes it wins. But if I stand back from it, I look at these debates as being part of the richness of an open society, something that we should celebrate. Sure, we, we mope and we pout if we, if we lose an argument or if we lose the historiographic battles, um, but that's part of the price we pay for living in a society that lets these debates go on inconclusively forever and gradually make progress to you know, getting closer and closer to what will allow a consensus view. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, yes. Um, I've gone back to my uh, first love, which is the early republic. And I have just completed an article which um, tries to make the case that the election of 1801, which most of your listeners probably will never have heard of because we usually refer to um, that, that presidential election as the election of 1800, um, but um, I'm trying to make the case that the election of 1801, which was the vote in the House of Representatives in February of 1801, that solved the deadlock for the presidency between Thomas Jefferson and Adam Burr, who had exactly the same number of electoral votes. Um, I'm trying to make the case that that election um, constitutes a constitutional event, a constitutional moment in American history, and it's not simply a, um, a, a political one. And in that sense, I'm adding a new argument um, to an event that those of us who study the early republic and its, its, its politics um, have seen in other ways, but not in that way. So in a sense, I've added an interpretive possibility um, to that subject, and so I suppose that's revisionist history. And out of that may come a book of essays by um, um, a number of historians and constitutional um, you know, students of jurisprudence and the Constitution who are not historians on constitutionalism in the early republic. But that's just uh, a warning now. I don't know where that'll turn out. And I don't at the moment have a subject for another book, but 
I may have another conversation with someone like Clarence Thomas or a neighbor of mine, and it'll give me an idea. Well, I hope that conversation comes soon because I look forward to reading your next book. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Jim, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful thank day. Thank you, Mark. You likewise.